0: verse 22. Who is the liar? One of the ways that you know whether they're antichrists or liars is because they walked away. They're no longer a part of us, and they can no longer relate to us. But another thing is, who is the liar? Verse 22, but the person who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This one is the antichrist, the person who denies the father and the son. Everyone who denies the Son does not have the Father either. The person who confesses the Son has the Father also. Who is this liar? Who is synonymous with the Antichrist, John will say? The one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Now what does John mean by Jesus is the Christ? For John, Jesus is the humanity. The humanity of the Messiah. And he's made this very clear. Well, first, this is made clear by the gospel writers, by the fact that the second member of the Trinity has always existed. And John makes this very clear by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, all things came into existence through the Word. So this is very clear. The second member of the Trinity has always existed, but he was never known as Jesus. He was never known as Jesus. This becomes clear in Luke's gospel when the angel comes and gives the birth announcement to Mary and says that you will give birth to the Messiah and you shall call him Jesus. The first time ever. And Jesus was a very, very popular common name in the Greek world, and the, the Jewish Greek world, like John Smith. Okay, it would be the equivalent of our John Smith. And, and, and it was so common that Jesus, the Greek version of Joshua, of the Hebrew. And, and Joshua, of course, was a very popular name because of The very famous Joshua who took the torch or the mantle of leadership from Moses and led the people into the promised land and led the most faithful generation ever in the history of Israel. And so this is a very popular name. And one of the things that God is doing with this name is saying he's going to literally be one of you. Even right down to his name. He's going to be common. And live a common, non-detached, elitist life. He's going to know what it's like to be a human. This is the point that Philippians is making, that he will give up his right to exploit his elitism, his power, his his godhood, and become human, even to the point of suffering. But the fact that his incarnation, his enfleshing, begins his earthly life, that it also begins the moment that he is Jesus. And so Jesus is everything about that name Jesus human, human, the everyday normal in the trenches of trying to survive from paycheck to paycheck, so to speak, human. Now John affirms this in the beginning of his letter in 1 John by saying, from the very beginning when I was chosen by him, I saw him, I heard him, and I touched him. That's the focus. And he also makes it clear in his gospel when he says in verse 14, And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and I touched them. And so in the context of the gospels, and the context of John's gospel, and the context of this letter, for John, Jesus is his humanity. His humanity and his fullness. The humanity who walked with people. He walked with everyday normal people. He rolled up his sleeves and got messy with everyday normal people. He dealt with the pathetic crappiness of the disciples like a lot of us deal with. And he even went to the point of cross and persecution having nothing to his name. Human. Who is the Christ. For the, 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 the Jews, the Christ is the Messiah. This is the Greek version of the word Messiah of Hebrew which literally just means the anointed one the one that is uniquely chosen by God. Now, in the First Testament, the Messiah was three kinds of people. You were either priest, prophet, or king. And the only people that ever got the anointing where the Holy Spirit would come down upon them was king, priest, and prophet. There were a few exceptions, like the artist who, who built and designed and etched, well, no, they didn't design, God designed, but who um, did all the carvings and etchings and stitchings and and metal overlaying that God instructed. God put his spirit upon them in their craftsmanship. Um, The judges got the spirit temporarily for just certain specific tasks. But the ones who got it from the beginning of their anointing until they no longer were serving in ministry were king, prophet, and priest. And it was symbolically represented by the olive oil being poured on their head. And, And so these people did not ever have the indwelling, But they had the Spirit of God come upon them like a cloaking. And so these were the messiahs. They were messiahs. They were anointed ones. But obviously, Genesis 49, verse 8, and then Numbers 24, verse 17, um, begins to prophesy the Messiah. And it never uses the word messiah there, but it talks about a king, a unique king that would come. And, it's, and then it's, it's David in the Psalms that starts merging, developing this more. And then it's the writing prophets, not the speaking prophets. Abraham, Moses, all of them were speaking prophets, but they never wrote their messages down. Yes, Moses wrote, but it was more of narratives and the law, but not actually what he spoke to the people, except for Deuteronomy. And so the writing prophets they are the ones, God began to work through them and really began to unpack the idea of that there was going to be the Messiah one day. The specific Messiah. Like, not just any Home Depot, the Home Depot. And not just any Ohio State, the Ohio State. <laughs> that we even want to copyright that, okay? So a very direct, specific unique, and over and beyond us. And of course, the prophecies, the plethora of prophecies, made it clear that this is a unique anointed one, a unique Messiah um, that would go over and beyond all the others, and that there would never be anything like it ever, anything like him, and any past, present, or future. Then the prophecies begin to point to his godhood. We talked about this, I've talked about this a lot because it's so crucial, but Daniel 7, talks about the fact that this son of man who is human will approach the throne, which means he has no sin because you can only come to the throne if you have no sin. And God himself, Yahweh, will give him all power, all authority, all glory. We're told in Isaiah that the government will rest on his shoulders and he shall be called mighty God. And there's lots of things where it begins to point to his divinity. And so when he comes, he proves, Jesus proves over and over again that not only is he the Christ, the anointed one the messiah but he also claims to be god he allows the disciples to bow down to him and worship him and never tells them to stop he he takes on the same names and titles that god had and never apologizes he he does the miracles that only god can do and and he he preaches and teaches with the authority that only god has and, and so Um, there's an acronym called HANDS where he takes on the honors that only go to Yahweh in the First Testament. He takes the attributes on that only belong to Yahweh in the First Testament. He takes on the names that only belong to Yahweh of the First Testament and he does the deeds that only Yahweh could do. And he receives supplication, worship that only God allowed to be received. All these things that not once does God ever strike him down or denounce him? In fact, he continues to use Christ and allow him to do miracles shows he truly is God, and then ultimately through his self-resurrection. At this point, it is by the end of the Gospels that everybody clearly understands that Christ, the Anointed One, is no longer just the Anointed One that goes over and beyond all other Anointed Ones, but the Anointed One that is the fullness of the deity of God himself. And this becomes clear in Hebrews when we're told that he is the exact copy of God. That all the glory of God dwells in him. And that he sits at the right hand of God and spoke all things into existence. This is clear when Philippians says that he is the equality with God. This is clear when Colossians, were told all the fullness of God dwells in him. Over and over again we're told this. For Christ, that is his deity, his Godhood. It is the I am statements that John develops in his Gospels. And so for John, the word Jesus, the title, the name, Jesus Christ, communicates God, man, or the reverse word, man, God. That he is both human and he is both God. And what John is saying is that anyone who denies that he is human and God, he is an Antichrist, period he's going to unpack that more of then how do you take this and test the spirits when we get deeper into the letter okay but for right now he wants to understand that anyone who's in the church who embrace the gospel and yet now denies that Jesus is God and man they're an antichrist they stand in the church and say I am a Christian I am a teacher of the word of God follow me but, Jesus is not God, or Jesus is not human. For the Jew, he's not God. God is not a human. That's the false teacher, the Antichrist. For the Gentile, God is not a human. The body is not valued. Why would you ever want it? And that is the Greek Christian, or Christian, in quotes, Antichrist. And they can deny either one but they usually don't deny both because that would just, what are you? So what he says is you are the antichrist, the person who denies the father and the son. That's the problem for the Jew because the Jew would say, oh, I have no problem with the father, but it's that son that I have a problem with. And John says, no, 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 no. And this is why This is why Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, If you really knew the Father, you would know me. I've said this before, but this is so important for you to understand. The modern-day church as a whole, I'm not talking about everybody's churches and everybody that you've ever listened to or ever taught, but the modern-day church as a whole, from the inception of America, well all the way throughout the Catholic time period to the medieval period, has had a hard time of really diving into the First Testament teaching it. We are a New Testament church, and then, and then I don't blame them to a certain degree, I love and I live and breathe, and you've all figured that out by now if you've ever been there long enough, the First Testament, but it is a confusing, weird sometimes really dark and twisted, nasty book. And it's a hard culture for us to really understand and get. We are so separated and ignorant from that culture. And you have to do so much work outside the Bible to understand that culture, to begin to understand, like, okay, this is just weird. How does it cease to just be weird and start to actually make sense to me? I get it. I get how on one level we're just like, we're a New Testament church because the Gospels are really easy to understand. Easier. And because that's Christ. And he is the author of our salvation. But you need to understand something. You never, ever, ever learn anything about God by watching him do or speak in the Second Testament. There's only two times that God ever acts or speaks And that is in the Gospels when God comes down at Jesus' baptism and says, This is my son, whom I well please. And then at the transfiguration where he says, This is my son. Listen to everything that he tells you to do. Other than that, God never speaks directly. Paul tells you a lot about who God is. James tells you a lot about who God is. Peter, right? But you never see with your own eyes or hear with your own ears as you read the narrative what God is saying or doing, except for those two cases. So everything else, you had to just be told, oh, God is compassionate. God is loving. God is just. Now, those words have meaning to you because you've watched God at work. But we all know how the world can redefine words so easily. Love is love water is water. This idea that we can make words that are, I love my backpack, I love my children, I love my wife, I love this ice cream. We can redefine words so many different ways. And so if you just say, oh, he's a really just person, then you get to know him. He's like, oh, that's not my definition of just. Batman is just, but is that your definition of just, right? The question is, What does that really mean when Paul and John and Peter and all of them say that? The only way you can know what that really means is by watching God work and hearing him speak. And that is only in the First Testament. It's the only time you get that. And all of a sudden, these words love, justice, mercy start getting fleshed out with real pictures. This is what Paul means when he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What in the world does that actually really mean? What does it mean fall short from the glory of God? Oh, you've missed the mark. What does that even mean? Oh, but you go back and you read Genesis and you read about... Adam and Eve sinning, you read about Cain murdering his brother and walking away and building a city and rebelling to God and, and you read about the, the flood generation they were thinking only evil all the time and you read about the Tower of Babylon and then you see the jacked up patriarchs and all that kind of stuff and then you see the history of Israel and they are given so much, the, the Shekinah glory of God and the tabernacle and the word and the law and God speaking to them, doing miracles and all that kind of stuff and they're still going off and going straight and doing horrible jacked up evil things you're like, oh. That's what it means for all of sin. And that's where you learn. That's where you learn. Why? Why do you get no revelation of who God is? So that when Jesus comes, you will recognize who He is. That you have such a complete picture of who God is that when Jesus comes, and, and takes on the same honors, the same attributes, the same names, the same deeds, and t- receives the same supplication, you'll say, Oh, that's exactly what God the Father was like. And there can't be any new revelation, because then you'll be like, Well, wait a minute, Jesus is doing something new now. If he's doing something new that God has never done, then are they truly the same? Right? And if God does something new, and the Gospels that you've never seen before, then you can say, there you go. John just made that all up in order to make Jesus look like him, right? So God has to be fully revealed to you before Jesus comes on the scene so you can be so confident that this Jesus truly is God. And then the epistle writers begin to take you deeper. They begin to help you understand the revelation. And unpack the implications. They help you connect the dots of Jesus to the Father and they help you unpack the implications of that. And this is what Jesus meant by if you really knew the Father, you would know me. If you really knew God and you really hung out with Him and you really were doing worship and supplication and prayer and seeking Him, then when Jesus showed up it would just look like your Father with different clothes on. I mean, if your father changes shirts and you no longer recognize them, the question is, do you really know your father? If somebody says they're a jerk and they're a horrible person, you're like, that's not the person I know. Then the question is, do they talk about the same person you do? Or did you really know that person? Right? This is what John is saying. The person who confesses, who denies the father, and the Son. Everyone who denies the Son does not have the Father either. The person who confesses the Son has the Father also. The only way you can have the Father is if you also have the Son. And if you really know the Father, you'll recognize the Son. And if you claim to have the Son, see, for the Jew, John's saying, If you really know the Father, you would have embraced His Son because they're one and the same. And you should have known Him so well that you would have recognized Him when He showed up with different clothing on this time. But the Gentile, he's saying, if you really say that you know the Son, then you'll know the Father too. Because as you go back to the First Testament, you'll realize that the Father looks exactly like the Son and that you'll embrace the God of the Jews. But instead, you're too busy creating division and saying us and them. And so it goes both ways for John. Not only do you have to embrace that Jesus Christ is the human God, but you also have to embrace the Son is the Father and the Father is the Son. Period. Anything else is an aberration. And anything else is contradictory and flawed with tons of holes in it. And that is is the mark of an antichrist. That is the mark of an antichrist. And for John, the antichrist is the one who's inside the church, who walks away and denies these things. He says, you're an antichrist. But at the end, too, he goes beyond that and says, but anyone who denies one or the other or both of these is not of God. So even the non-believer who's never embraced the faith, the non-believer who has never stepped in the church, Even they are not of God because they don't accept both of these. Does this make sense? Sometimes people think like, okay, you could have just said that in a couple of sentences like John did. Why did you spend so long going back into the First Testament and unpacking that stuff? Because you need to know why that argument holds water. I grew up in a church and with a lot of people who for most of my life, oh, most of them just said, Well, because <laughs> I had a lot of questions and a lot of doubts. And a lot of people were like, Well, because John says you gotta embrace the Son, and the Father. But why? Why is that so important? Why do I have to do both for my salvation? And I'm not saying that was a specific question I had back then, but something like that. And there were just a couple of people in the church, a handful. And then eventually when I went to Wayne Christian and Matt, Mr. Eiton, Al that for the first time, somebody started saying, well, because this is the mathematical equation. This is how you work the problem. And this is why it produces this answer and no other answer. And if you don't get this answer, then you have the wrong equation. And the equation has to be fully intact, so to speak, for it all to work. And for the first time, I started figuring out, and Francis Schaeffer's books and, and that kind of stuff, finally started feeling like this. It's not just important to know the truth. It's important to know how the truth works. And not only just so that you can know that you are saved, but so that when the world throws a different equation at you, you can say, that doesn't work, and I know why. And that is so important this day-age, day and age, day age more than ever. Because with the increase of technology has come the ease to travel, and with the ease, with the increase of technology has come the shrinking of the world through the internet. And where you, many people of my parents' generation, grandparents' generation, grew up in a society where they were largely living with people who had like views and like ideas and like culture. And then there's nothing wrong with that. Not, that was not bad of your generation. That was not bad at that time period. You were not somehow lacking or flawed or incomplete or inferior because of that. That was just the nature of the time period. It was not wrong. It was just different. But we now live in a day and an age where the whole world is being shoved down our kids' throats on a regular basis like i'd even hindus were the people way over there when i was a kid i mean i remember when i went to college for the first time and yes i'm dating myself a little bit but and they were like hey everybody's gonna get their own email address and we're like email what is that (laughs) and they're like well there's this thing called the internet i was like well I, i remember my like senior teacher saying something about the internet and we're like, ooh, internet. And We went there, and like, we explored the internet like three nights, and we were done, <laughs> right? I mean, three nights, and we we're done. We had like, and they were all like government websites or businesses or something like that. Oh, but oh, this is a little side note. But in all those government websites and research encyclopedia websites, that's all there was at first, right? It was just government businesses and research like websites. There was one guy who was on the cutting edge. Of everybody else, and it was Seth's Way Cool Sloth webpage, like that was like the only he was like the first personal website I ever <laughs> found at that time period. All he has is a bunch of pictures of sloths and cool facts about them. So I just remember being blown away by that. Like, oh my gosh, this guy like, like he was doing web design before everybody else in their basement. That was a little side note, but we now have so much celebrities, who are constantly, like, remember when we were growing up, like, everybody was listening to the same music and watching the same TV shows because there were only, like, a handful of TV stations and one or two movie theaters, and it was so difficult to get your album published that there was only a handful to speak, and now we live in a day and age where, like, even if you're you know, like, oh grandpa you're sad, touch, you can't keep up with the modern stuff, nobody can keep up with it anymore. There's so many movies, so many T V shows, so many things on the internet, so many things on YouTube, so many self published bands and Spotify and stuff, and there's so many celebrities now with all these mess, so many religions coming in, so many websites saying this and that and that and that and all these things and these kids are just being bombarded with all the time. And it's not enough for the church to say because the Bible says so anymore. It wasn't good enough back then, and it's definitely not going to hold water now. And this is why so many people are walking away from the faith. Because we have not taught them how to think and how to combat the world's philosophies. And I'm not saying nobody has, but I mean in general, as a whole. And this is why we need to understand why I spend 10, 20 minutes on one verse to help you understand why, why this is so important. We embrace it. You need to understand that when somebody, because the why is important, because when somebody starts throwing the alternate view at you, you can say that doesn't work. Not like, ooh, but I've always been taught this way. And now they're teaching this way, and this sounds really good too. So maybe they're right. Now you can say, no, 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 I don't care how good you can make it sound. I don't care how it tickles this in nature in me and the autonomy in me. I know that that doesn't work in a practical equation, mathematical, whatever, for lack of a better example way. Because I know why this works and why me embracing God and man. And me embracing father and son equal is absolutely essential for my salvation. And because anything else inferior is not only uncivilized, anything less would be uncivilized, (laughs) but it also won't save me. And it won't give me life to the fullest. And it will not make my joy complete. And that's how you combat the lies of the world. Not with a rote memorization of a catechism of what we believe but with why we believe what we believe. And not just because the Bible says so. And don't get me wrong. Yes, because the Bible says so. I'm a firm believer of that, or I'm wasting my time teaching here. But I know why the Bible says so. I know why that works. And I can stand up against you. And here's the other thing I tell my students all the time. And even if you don't remember every single mathematical equation in this theological kind of a sense, And even though one day 30 years later down the road you're up against a professor, up against a neighbor, up against a coworker, whatever, saying these things and you're like, oh my gosh, I learned that so long ago. And I don't remember exactly why this all works together. Well, first I would say repetition is the key to learning. I can't tell you how many times I read the same commentary over and over again. I can't tell you how many times I have rewritten my stuff over and over and over again trying to get it down. Some people are like, wow, you teach a lot from without your notes. Yeah, it's because I've read those commentaries so many times. the same one because it's so hard. I have a reading comprehension. comp. I have dyslexia. I have a learning disability. But I'm convinced that even if you don't, you still have to reread things. And I underline, and and, and I make comments, and then I type, and then I retype, and I hate that part. Okay? And then I teach, and I teach again, and then it starts becoming a part of you. And that's how you own it. And that's how it becomes a part of you. But the other thing I tell them is, not only do you need to do that, but if you don't, because we only have so much time in life and we can only like digest and repeat so many things, at least you can go into that college professor that neighbor and you can remember, I don't remember exactly why you're wrong and why this doesn't work, what you're saying. And I don't exactly remember every single step of the process of why what the Bible says right. But I remember a time when I learned it and it made sense and all other options did not make sense and though I cannot repeat that to you and maybe I won't be able to convince you I am not swayed by you. Because I remember that it did make sense. And I at least remember enough that I know where I can go maybe to relearn it. If, I want to, if you want to have a conversation again. And that's important, too. That's important. And I know sometimes you're like, there's no way I can learn all this stuff or digest all this stuff. and, But it's amazing what you will tuck away that the Holy Spirit can bring out the right moment. And even if he doesn't, because you're still finite, you still rest in the confidence. But at one time, I don't, did read that I did work through it it did make sense all the other options did not make sense and that strengthened my faith my foundation came solid and even though I can't remember every single groove and grain in my foundation I know that it's solid because I remember that it was there and that is just as valid for your assurance and your confidence as you face the world does this make sense? And this is why it takes so long to unpack some things. And that's why I repeat things over and over again from the first testament and then this is why I'd go all and that's why I keep going back to the first testament so many times and connecting things. Because this is what has worked for me. This is the way that God has revealed Himself. And this is the only thing that will buttress our faith and the new world that we live in today. The new world that we live in today. And it's not just our kids. I know so many older people who've walked away later when the Internet now came in their palm in their hands. Right? You're like, these kids this day, and then you get addicted to Candy Crush just like everybody else. <laughs> okay? We need to know what we believe and why. Does this make sense? Verse 24. As for you, what you have heard from the beginning must remain in you. If what you heard from the beginning remains in you, you also remain in the Son and in the Father. And so this is kind of the antithetical statement as they did not belong to us because if they belonged to us, they never would have left us. And by them leaving us, demonstrated that they never belonged to us. Now he's saying you must remain in the faith because the only way to show that you're still part of the faith is remain. And this goes back to John chapter 14 where he says, or John 13, where he says, remain in me and I'll remain in you. The mark of the true believer is perseverance, steadfastness, abiding, remaining. Verse 25, this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. These things have writ- I have written to you about those who are trying to deceive you. This is the promise of eternal life. The message is simple. Jesus is God, man, who died for you and dwells in you." That is your assurance of salvation. If you believe and embrace and commit yourself, trust and obey, for there is no other way to the fact that Jesus Christ is the God-man and that he is the same as the Father and that he came to die on the cross and be resurrected for your sins and only through him and him alone, that is the message. And that is the assurance of your eternal life. And the more that you seek to persevere that, and the more that you repent when you wrong it, that assures you of your salvation. And this is eternal life. Now, yes, the beauty of that is it is so simple that that's all you need. Am I pursuing that? And am I repenting when I'm not holding to it and practicing it? If I am... I am assured of my salvation. But it's also so complex and multi-layered, you could spend your entire life unpacking that. And that's why Paul says, I preach the gospel to those who are already saved. Because not only do we need to be reminded in our perseverance, but there's so much to explore. This is why I write to you, John says. 27, now as for you, the anointing that you received from him resides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. Now, here's important. Now, as for you, the anointing that you received, you have been anointed. But your anointing is from him who resides in you. You're anointed because Christ is anointed and he's in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, it is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you to reside in him. Now, what John doesn't mean is you don't need teachers ever in your life. So stop listening to me. Stop listening to your pastors. Stop reading those commentaries. Stop doing those devotionals. You have no need for that. He's not saying that. He's going back to Jeremiah 31, 31. In Jeremiah 31, 31, Jeremiah prophesies, A day is coming when I will make a new covenant with you. And it will not be like the old covenant, the mosaic law that your ancestors broke, but it will be a new covenant where I will write my law in your hearts and all of you will know God and you will no longer need anyone to say, this is God and to teach you who God is. What he meant by that is the only person who knew who God was, was the prophet. Because only the prophet... Could and I mean know the will of God, not know who He is, but know what God's will is for you. That God would say, "This is what I want you to do," and this is who I am. The only person who could know that was the prophet, because the prophet was the only one who went on to the divine council of Yahweh, and we'll get to that in a few weeks. But the divine council of Yahweh is where God brings Isaiah in chapter six, and and and, and, and um, Micaiah in Second Kings or First Kings twenty two. And, and he brings them up into the divine council. He brings them up in heaven. And they actually get to see God through a vision. They hear God. And God says, go and speak this to the people. Because not everybody had the Holy Spirit on them. And nobody had the Holy Spirit in them. So the Holy Spirit couldn't speak to you in your life because he wasn't in you. Because the only way the Holy Spirit could be in you is if you are perfect. Perfect without sin. But there was no atonement for sin that could perfect you because animal sacrifices were not good enough. Only the prophet could get the spirit on them, be brought up into heaven and get the idea of what God's will is, and they would come down and speak the will of God. So the only way that you can ever know what God's will for your life was, and the only way you could have a revelation of who God was, is if a prophet told you. And if the prophet got it wrong, then you got it wrong. And there was no way to fact check them because you weren't, you didn't know God's will. And so Jeremiah talks about a day, a day is coming when I will put the spirit of God, the law, and this will be unpacked later. He will call it the law. Joel chapter 2 we'll call it the spirit. Amos will also call it the spirit. Ezekiel will call it the spirit. I will pour out my spirit on you. And you will all have the divine counsels to speak in you, and you will all be able to hear God. You will all be able to speak to him. The Spirit will speak to all of you, and all of you can know God. So when somebody says, this is who God is, you can say, amen, brother, because I have God in me too. Or you can say, no, you're wrong, because we all have the Spirit. Now that doesn't mean that you become an authority to yourself. Because we all know that sometimes it's not actually God, but it's the goat cheese we had last night speaking to us or making us feel something, right? I feel it's God. Maybe it's just all the sugar you had last night. But when we subject ourselves to the priesthood of believers where we all keep gathering along, and the Spirit is speaking to all of us, and we all say, Amen. The Spirit said that to me too, 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 too. And there's that one person who heard something different, than me. you're like, ah, maybe you weren't hearing the Spirit. And then not only that, but then it's also the Spirit speaks the same to all the people in all nations through all times of history. And then when you have this unified message of the priesthood of believers, regardless of culture and time, and gender and ethnicity and you have this coherent message and we all now can be confident because we all have this spirit speaking to us and contributing to the chorus and we're no longer just depend upon you and only you as a prophet this is what john is going back to these You don't need someone to teach you who God is. You may need somebody to help you go deeper and unpack it and have the cultural understanding and the Greek and Hebrew word study. Maybe somebody who has a different perspective than you. They can share a different eye. But not to actually just know God, fellowship with him, pray and talk to him, feel him and experience him, and be affirmed by him and rebuked by him. You don't need that. So don't go to those false teachers and be completely dependent upon them as if they're the only way that you could ever know God because that's what they're telling you. They're the only ones who have a secret message and are connected to God because they proved themselves worthy and they earned it and they got up there and they're above you and you're now dependent upon them. No, 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 no. That's exactly why Jesus died on the cross was to get you back from that. It doesn't mean that you always trust every thought and every emotion that comes in your being. But it means that you're not utterly dependent upon an elitist to know God. Does that make sense? This is why I write to you it is true, it is not a lie. Just as it's taught to you, you reside in Him. Verse 28. And now, little children, the whole congregation, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him and shame when he comes back. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness has been fathered by him. So what he's saying here is, keep remaining in him so that when he comes back, you're not filled with shame. He doesn't come back one day and you think, wow, I don't look or act like him in any kind of a way. And then you feel the shame. The greatest mark of assurance is when Christ comes back and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Not good, perfect race servant, but well done, well done. When Stephen was being stoned in chapter 7, he looked up and he says, Behold, I see the Son of Man, or Jesus, standing on the right hand of God in heaven. That just angered the Jews even more. And that's what brought the final giant rock boulder strokes on killing him. Now, the thing that had angered him them was two things. First, he was claiming that that Jesus that they hated him and was about ready to kill him for anyways was up there in heaven. It was one final stick in their side of speaking. Now, Stephen didn't mean it that way, but that's how they interpreted and perceived it. But the other thing is, in the ancient world, the king did not stand for anyone. Anytime you came into the king's presence, the king sat. And he never stood for you, and he never came to you. You come to the king, it sits, and you come and stand before him. You never sit unless you're invited to sit. And it's only if you're having a meal other than that and sometimes if a king wanted to honor a knight or a servant above all others he would stand and it was his way of giving that person the highest honors that he could for his faithfulness and servant to the king now there's no record of this happening specifically in history of any kind of way But there is this idea in historical records that this did happen. We just don't have a very specific case with like this guy, okay? And this is what Stephen was experiencing. And and this is what John's talking about. One day he's going to come. And will he stand for you when you enter in and say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will he say to you, you've strayed so much from the truth. And you are no longer in fellowship with my children. If you truly love the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, then you don't want to ever hear that. So remain in him. And pursue righteousness. Because everyone who practices righteousness is in the faith. And He's circling all the way back to the very beginning of the first chapter. The true believer renounces sin and practices what is right. Believers are to be discerning of the teachers and teachings that come into the church. John has wrapped obedience, right doctrine, spiritual anointing, and love for the brothers all into one package and made them all dependent upon each other. Yes, you can know God without them. But you also are the priest of the believers. Truth, love, fellowship, community. Does that make sense? Any questions? This is a powerful little book on doctrine and assurance.